just a 10-minute light rail ride from the heart of Denver on the fifth floor of the Lamont School of Music, there is a rose. It is 10 feet tall and wide and hewn from stone. The panes of glass set into the petals bring the glorious Rocky Mountains into view. On the other side of the glass, Lamont musicians sit down to discuss the world of music behind and beyond that window. This is the Rose Room. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ethnomusicology Part 2. I'm your host, Grace Gans, and today I have the immense pleasure of speaking to Dr. Alasia Whitmore, who is an ethnomusicology professor at DU. Her research focuses on the world music industry, globalization, and cultural policy, all of which we'll get to talk about today. And she just recently released a book in the spring called World Music and the Black Atlantic, which analyzes how musicians, industry actors, and audiences create, promote, and consume West African and Cuban musics in the world music industry. And finally, she's also a faculty affiliate for and is conducting research on the Spirituals Project at Lamont. And through that, she does work with community music making and social justice in Denver. So, needless to say, we have an incredible guest with us today. I am so excited that you're here. Uh, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. It's been, a, it's been a week, huh? It has been a week. Yes. For our listeners, we are recording um, during, like, the fourth day of the election, I think, we're at now. <laughs> it's been a wild ride. And we'll actually get to talk about that a little bit, too, kind of how politics and music combine. So, I'm really excited about that. So for our listeners, uh, you should all definitely go back and listen to our last episode with Sarah Morelli, who is also an ethnomusicologist, but has a different specialization in classical Hindustani music and Kathak dance. But in that episode, I know what exactly ethnomusicology is. It's not a field of music that most people are familiar with. And from my experience, just taking one class on it, it's a field that kind of has a ton of different definitions um, based on who you're talking to. So to start off, I want to ask you, how do you define ethnomusicology? What is it? Yeah, sure. So a lot of ethnomusicologists define ethnomusicology really broadly because it does encompass so much. Um, but often we talk about um, ethnomusicology uh, as the study of music as culture and the study of music in culture. Um, we, we see music and culture as inseparable. And so ethnomusicologists study everything from, you know, the history of music in different places around the world, as well as um, what's going on today, as well as contemporary studies, which is more of what I do. A lot of ethnomusicologists do very much identify as cultural anthropologists, but not all of them. So, you know, um, so um, some people do like to say that ethnomusicology is like the anthropology of music, and that definitely is um, often the case, but we don't want to ever exclude the people who do historical studies and identify more as historians. Um, so yeah, we encompass a lot of music, and a lot of people think about the ethnomusicology as kind of emerging when people um, decided, hey, we want to formalize the study of music and culture that is not Western classical music and culture. But ethnomusicology has expanded so much since then. And it also comes out, you know, it's also very much connected to folklore studies. So it is many different things, which is why it's hard to define. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what type of ethnomusicology do you do? Like, why did you decide to pursue it, actually, to get into that? Uh, so... I started pursuing ethnomusicology as an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto when I was 18. And I started joining all of the world music ensembles at the University of Toronto. There were about like 10 <laughs> I was there. It oh was my God. Lot. I took Amazing. Korean drumming, uh, Japanese drumming, Japanese taiko, uh, Ghanaian wow. drumming and dancing, um, steel pan, gamelan. I did all sorts of things and I just loved discovering all different types of music making and different ways of thinking about music. And I became really fascinated by that. And I started taking a lot of ethnomusicology classes. And I realized that um, I love learning about humans. And mm -hmm. I was just endlessly curious about the different ways humans engage with music 
and think about music and create music. And so I just wanted to learn everything about everything. And so I actually started um, doing field work in Toronto. I started going to a um, Saturday afternoon salsa dance at a local church. I lived in Koreatown Fun. at the time. So I started every Saturday I would go to this like community. It was like a really chill community church event every Saturday afternoon yeah. in Koreatown. And then I started doing research with a Serbian band because there's a big Serbian community in in Toronto. So I started playing with their um, community band and we would play for dances and parties in the community center. I started doing a little volunteering with some music education uh, nonprofits and uh, just kind of took off from there. But I just realized I found so much joy in learning about all of these different ways that people were engaging with music and culture. And yeah, that's how it started. Yeah. Did you, I'm curious, did you grow up singing or playing an instrument or being exposed to a lot of music? Yeah. Both of my parents are actually forest biologists. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, but apparently I used to walk around the house singing incessantly. And so our neighbor told my mom <laughs> to put me in a choir. <laughs> so I've been singing in choir since I was uh, probably five or six. Um, okay. Yeah. And so I sang in choirs all the way through undergrad until I was like 21, 22. And now I'm finally rejoining the choir world. But yeah, I sang in choirs. I also did, started recorder at a young age. I took private recorder oh. lessons. I was really into it. But then my recorder teacher left and she was like, I recommend starting like the clarinet, the flute or the oboe. And oboe was the only instrument I hadn't heard of. So I convinced my mom that that mm -hmm. was the one to go with. <laughs> so uh, I've, been, I've played the oboe for many, many years, yeah. Okay, really cool. I uh, only took recorder in fourth grade music class. <laughs> we did recorder karate, where you work your way up with the belts. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I think my parents had just met this teacher who taught private recorder, and they were like, oh, she'll like that. And recorder that's is so a funny. really great instrument. <laughs> that people do play quite seriously. And it's often just considered this elementary school instrument and tradition where it's really uh, far more diverse and, and um, complex, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. So talking about field work, um, I know a huge part of ethnomusicology is field work doing in-person research. So what field work have you done in your career outside of what you did in Toronto? Um, a lot. Yeah, so <laughs> I went to grad school at Brown University in Rhode Island, in Providence, Rhode Island. And so when I got to grad school, um, I started doing field work with the Providence salsa community. And so I wrote my master's um, on that. I did a lot of dancing in Providence and the surrounding area, which was really fun. And then uh, an anthropology grad student who I knew at Brown came back from Ghana and she goes, Alicia, you won't believe it. Salsa is just so popular in Ghana. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so I started looking into that and became really, really interested in the history of Cuban music in Africa. And I say Africa, I mean Africa, like all over the continent, Cuban music has been popular. Mm -hmm. It had kind of its heyday in the 1960s. And so I started doing a little research. And then I realized, you know, these bands who were more popular in the 1960s playing kind of Cuban, African music were actually doing more a lot of work I don't say I don't know more but maybe anyways a lot of work on the world mm -hmm. music industry and I got interested in how they're producing music for the world music industry and so I ended up doing research for my dissertation and writing my dissertation on Cuban and West African musics in the world music industry so I was on tour with two different bands um, for several months and this is a song called Nima Diala by one of the bands Dr. Whitmore toured with Afrocubism. We went to, oh, I went, I traveled to over 20 countries while I was doing that field work and then um, following them around <laughs> and kind of hanging out with right. them and conducting interviews and, and going to all their concerts and conducting interviews with audience members and the tour managers and all that stuff. And I also spent a bit of time, um, several months each time in um, Mali and Senegal, so in Bamako and Dakar, 
uh, working with the musicians in their homes, um, not in their homes, literally, well, sometimes, but, you know, <laughs> in their hometown um, where they live and getting to know kind of how their careers work from their perspectives. Um, and then I spent a lot of time working with people who work for in the record industry. So people who work for the record labels, um, journalists, tour managers. Mm -hmm. um, and I spent some time in London working with uh, the record label World Circuit and interning for them. So that was kind of the field work I did with World Circuit. And that was fun. Awesome. And so really quickly, I want to ask you about Afro-Cuban music specifically. Mm -hmm. I'm also really curious about it because how did that genre of music begin? You know, you have two different parts of the world, two separate continents. So how did they blend to become this really popular genre and like what makes it distinct? Yeah, so music develops over time through exchange, through cultural exchanges. And so I don't think there mm -hmm. is kind of one moment when we can say, you know, this is when Afro-Cuban music began. Um, Africans were brought to Cuba for many, many years. Enslaved Africans were brought to Cuba and unlike in the United States, where slaveholders restricted music making in a lot of different ways, in Cuba, um, there were fewer restrictions on music making um, by enslaved peoples. And there was, you know, just like in the United States, a process of cultural exchange and, you know, syncretism happening. So Afro-Cuban music has been a part of Cuba as long as Africans have in, in Cuba, I would say. You know, music is, is something that travels so quickly um, and easily because you don't need to bring anything physical with you when you travel. You can just bring your brain because we remember songs, right? So music is so, so portable in a lot of ways. And so Afro-Cuban music has been an important part of Cuban music more broadly. Here's a song by another band Dr. Whitmore toured with called Orchestra Baobab. This is called Upus Oras. Um, and, you know, Afro-Cuban music, there's a lot of research saying that it was important in the foundation of jazz as well, because Afro-Cuban music has always been circulating around the Caribbean. Right. And New Orleans is part of the Caribbean. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So a lot of people from Haiti and Cuba and other parts of the Caribbean have been influencing uh, music in New Orleans for a very, very long time. There, Alejandro Madrid and his colleague at, at University of Texas, Robin Moore, wrote a book called Danzon, and it talks a lot about those circulations. Yeah, it's just been, uh, yeah, I guess I feel like the question is a little broad. I don't even, <laughs> I feel like I'm babbling. Right. <laughs> I don't quite right. know what to say. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of leads into my next question mm -hmm. just about genre, because you have done this work specifically in Afro-Cuban music, but we had talked a couple days ago and I asked you kind of like, what genre or music do you specialize in? Because my only previous experience with musicologists were people who have like a very distinct specialty so I kind of expected you to say like oh I study Afro-Cuban music but you were like no no I don't specialize in any genre um and if I remember this correctly you said genre is kind of becoming outdated in a lot of ways could you speak on that a little bit yeah so I guess this also speaks to the fact that Afro-Cuban music, I don't really consider it to be a single genre either. Like there's so many kinds okay. of Afro-Cuban music. There's Cuban son, there's rumba, there's timba, there's there's a Cuban hip hop. So, you know, there there is that too, right? But yeah, so the reason I started talking about the death of genre is because why do we why do we have genre? Like can you think of why it's important to you? Uh I guess just identifying, like knowing what you're going to get out of something. Yeah, organizing your world, right? We yeah. love organizing the world. It's, it's fun. Um, mm -hmm. And it's necessary for us as like humans. Um, and a lot of times genres have also been created specifically to market music. We have okay. a long history of, of saying we're going to um, market this music in this way by calling it this. Right. right. So, you know, we have a long history in the United States of, you know, we've marketed... Um, Country music is hillbilly music, and we specifically marketed it to white people and defined it as white. 
in ways that were totally mm-hmm. historically inaccurate. <laughs> so genre is often very much part of marketing music. So for instance, the world music as a genre doesn't really have like anything that yeah. defines it specifically <laughs> other than yeah. in 1987, a bunch of record um, people who worked for record companies got together and said, we need to figure out how to market all this music that people love so much from Africa and Asia and all of these continents around the world. Um, what are we going to call it? So they called it world music. But they had a lot of, like, they had a hard time with it in the beginning. And they still have a hard time with the label today. Like, they still right. feel like it's kept all this music boxed in this in this corner that they can't seem to get out of. You know, they can't seem to get African artists promoted as pop artists um, as opposed to world music artists. So there have been a lot of debates surrounding the use of genre labels. And as um, music becomes more and more promoted online, Back when, say, the World Music label was created or Hillbilly Records were created, you would actually physically put a label on a physical product uh-huh. and you would put it in a bin with the label on the bin, right? That's how you would go shop for CDs when I was younger and <laughs> records even before that. And so a lot of people are saying, hmm, we're marketing music in really different ways now. Perhaps we should rethink how we're marketing music and how we think about genre and labels. That said, I don't think that genre is like going to completely disappear because we need a way to organize our world and talk about what we like and talk about what we're doing. We still need labels in order to promote ourselves, to tell audiences, to give audiences some sort of expectation. So genre may be dying. A lot of my students really like this idea, but I don't think it's totally dying. I think things are probably changing but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where stuff goes. I think probably the world music label it's on, is on its way out. But I don't know that the problems of stereotyping music that comes from outside of North America and Western Europe is going to is yeah. I don't know. I don't think that problem is going to be solved anytime soon. So there's no easy quick fix. Yeah, that's really interesting. And speaking about kind of that, like the globalization of music, I want to ask you about the course that you're teaching right now on musical theft. Um, First of all, can you explain in your own words what that is and why you wanted to create this class? Yeah, sure. So the class is called Musical Theft. And I just, I started getting, and this really doesn't have a lot to do with my specific research area, but I started getting annoyed Mm -hmm. with how people were just lobbing around the words cultural appropriation, accusing everyone Mm -hmm. of appropriation here, appropriation there, appropriation all the everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, I'm starting to sound like Dr. (laughs) Seuss. But yeah, I started thinking like, we really need to actually think about what this means and what is the impact? What's tangible and really salient here? So why does it Mm -hmm. matter? Not just, oh, that's cultural appropriation, but why does it matter that that is happening, whatever we call it. So I decided uh, to create this freshman seminar called Musical Theft, and we look at kind of all different aspects of things that might be called musical theft. So cross-cultural musical engagement that might be called musical theft or not, right? So one example would be Katy Perry's um, performing Dressed as a Geisha is one Mm -hmm. example that one of my students is doing her project on and kind of representation of Asian cultures and peoples in American pop music. Another one of my students is doing their their project on um, Madama Butterfly. Oh, okay. And, you know, the way Puccini represented Asian culture, Japanese culture, yeah. and people in that opera. And then also he's writing about how most of the time it's white people who play those Japanese characters in opera performances mm-hmm. in the West. So, <laughs> you know, is that, so a lot of times we end up talking in class about like, is this cultural appropriation? What does that mean? And we're slowly kind of building a definition of cultural appropriation over the course of the quarter. This week we looked at Cuban music in, in the Congo because I wanted them to think about why that doesn't make us uncomfortable. That type of cross-cultural engagement does not necessarily really make us uncomfortable. When Congolese musicians play Cuban-influenced music, that's a cross-cultural engagement that doesn't bring us much discomfort. And so I want them to think about why that is, you know, Hmm. think about the inverse in order to really define what you're talking about. Um, And then we've also, of course, done, like we've talked about intellectual property and sampling, which is super fun. 
Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I mean, like, in thinking about musical theft, what sort of questions should, like, musicians be asking themselves before they try to take samples or incorporate other cultures' music into their own? How do you be conscious of that? Yeah, it's a great question. So things to think about are we have intellectual property laws, right? And lots of musicians Mm -hmm. are very aware of intellectual property laws. They exist so that we can have creative innovation in our society so that musicians can make a living. That said, around the world, people think about intellectual property in really different ways. So oftentimes, cultural insiders or people who belong to that culture don't even believe that humans create music. So they will never claim, so individuals will never never claim ownership to a piece of music. And so those pieces of music just automatically go into public domain. They're labeled as traditional and folk music. Being sensitive to that issue, to where the music is coming from and what the cultural assumptions surrounding intellectual property are is really important. Just, I believe ethically, obviously you probably won't get in legal trouble, but ethically it's really important to think about, okay, how are these people conceiving of ownership? Do they think that the community owns the music? Because that's not gonna be recognized in intellectual property law. A community ownership doesn't really work in, in our kind of Western-based intellectual property um, laws and ideas. So thinking about, okay, is there a way I can contribute to this community and recognize that you know they do have certain claims of ownership if we think about this in a kind of less ethnocentric way, perhaps, right? Um, you know, other yeah. things to consider are, If I kind of use this melody, one, is it sacred in any way? Am I using it inappropriately? How do I gather that information? Two, you know, I said, make sure that you've done some research on intellectual property. You know, like the song, um, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, was actually composed by an individual, which you seem to be aware of. Yeah, it was composed by an individual in South Africa who was never, during his lifetime, wasn't able to claim his intellectual property rights to that composition. So his family was compensated after his death um, in the early 2000s, I believe. So, you know, making sure you do that research, because I'm sure Pete Seeger felt bad about that. I'd assume he felt (laughs) bad about that. He seemed like a nice guy, right? Like most people are nice people. It's rare that people actually want to steal from other people. And thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, especially when you um, engage with music from communities that might be under-resourced, think about, you know, what would they say if I were to use this music? Can I talk to them about that? Um, thinking about power, right? So can they talk back? Do they have the power to be like, mm, I'm not so sure about that or not, mm-hmm. right? Like thinking about just how they might react to you and if they even have the power to react to what you're doing. So thinking about voice, who gets amplified and why? And do people have the, have the power to react, right? So if you were to like copy something I did, like tomorrow, imitate me in mm-hmm. some way, um, I'd be like, hey, Grace, like, not cool, man. Like, I'm going to go talk to someone <laughs> and, and we're going to discuss yeah. ethical issues at the University of Denver, right? Because I have power in this situation and I'm able to hear mm-hmm. what you're doing and react to it. And that's really important when you think about engaging with other musics. Other important issues are like, you know, if you're going to, it's it's really awesome to be able to collaborate with musicians too. But think about the power relationships when you do those collaborations. So for instance, I work with this West African musician who's just amazing. I was visiting him and he told me, oh yeah, there was this Australian woman who wanted to do this recording session. And, you know, I, I'm looking for more opportunities to travel because remember people in Mali, they have to get visas to travel to the United States and Europe and other places. So, and it's sometimes hard to get those visas. So, you know, he's looking for opportunities to build his career. And so he did this recording session with her and she didn't pay him. Wow. So, you know, it, it was this weird situation where like he needed the opportunities, but you know, he also needs to get paid, but he also wasn't going to say no because of the yeah. opportunities that she might have to offer him. But also, if you just think of about that creative collaboration, one person has a lot more power in that creative collaboration situation than another person. Just, you know, even if she didn't have a lot of money, like, I don't know, but she has the power to travel. She doesn't necessarily have to get a visa to go everywhere. And she is able to leave Molly whenever she wants, you know, and yeah. she has at least the money, power, connections to travel and kind of go to a recording studio in Bamako and record some stuff, right? So 
it's really important to remember those collaborate those the power even within creative collaborations, which are so awesome. But just think about how your voice might be more powerful than someone else's voice, how someone might be like a little reticent to speak up to you and talk back because of yeah. the power dynamics. Right. So like, for instance, Paul Simon in his Graceland album was criticized for this precise thing. Paul Simon worked with various South African artists on his hit album, Graceland. Here's a clip of the male choir group Ladysmith Black Mombazo on the hit song Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. They're singing in Zulu on this track. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes He's a poor boy Empty as a pocket Empty as a pocket With nothing to lose Sing ta-na-na Ta-na-na Paul Simon is a really powerful dude. And he wasn't very reflective on how his power as like this white American pop musician would impact how the South Africans would react to him and collaborate with him. So there are so many things to think about. There's not one list, but I have like a bazillion, bazillion, bazillion things. And some of these things are really hard to do. Like figuring out exactly where a melody comes from and who wrote it is super hard sometimes. So, you know, we all try to do our best, but yeah, it's hard. And by the way, for the intellectual property stuff and and, um, kind of thinking about intellectual property and public domain in in more ethical ways, um, WIPO is working on that, just just an FYI. That's something that they discuss a lot, the World Intellectual Property Organization. Um, Well, those are all great thoughts. Thank you so much for talking about that. And then kind of switching gears a little bit, as we had talked about at the beginning of this episode, we are in an election quarter, I guess, right now. (laughs) Not election day. That's outdated. It's old news. But hopefully by the time this podcast airs, um, we'll know or at least have a very good indication of who's going to take office. But politics isn't something we often talk about on this podcast, but politics and music are often intertwined in a lot of interesting ways. Um, And you do a lot of research on this in cultural policy. So in your observation, how have music and politics interacted in this year's kind of election season specifically? Um, so I uh, so a lot of my work is on policy, how, so how governments treat music. And now, like during an election season, like so oftentimes I think about, okay, how, how are governments trying to manage and how are they engaging with musicians and arts administrators and people in that world? But really when we start talking about an election season's music or we're talking about one, how politicians are instrumentalizing music in some ways, right? Using music yeah. for, to their own ends. And also we're talking about how um, different like voter rights organizations or um, protest movements are using music to do all sorts of things like build community, build awareness, create awareness, um, maintain enthusiasm, like staying the course, uh, maintaining yeah. unity. So unity and community kind of go together. And also just gain ownership of the streets almost, right? So hmm. um, I live in um, Cap Hill. So I okay. see a lot of protests going on all spring, summer, you know. Um, I've seen all these protests. And something that you might notice when you see protests is the ways that sound is used in protest is really important. Yeah. So in the beginning of the protest, I was really worried about the protesters. I was like, oh no, they're not using sound correctly. They need to use sound better, right? Because they didn't have speakers, they didn't have amps, right? Or g- good amps. And, and I was worried because oftentimes in protest, sonically claiming ownership over a space is really important. Yeah. And it's not just claiming that sonic ownership of a space, but it's also like making sure everyone's claiming that space together. So actively engaging in that sonic ownership. So, you know, chanting together, singing together. So, you know, in the civil rights movement, a lot of that involved singing and often call and response singing. In the civil rights movement, there were a lot of repurposed spirituals that, you know, the lyrics were changed. Also, you know, labor movement songs and different, a lot of um, songs that involved a lot of call and response and also changing the lyrics to make them fit the moment. Songs that allowed for kind of flexibility. And today I'm seeing a lot of... Um, a lot of different types of music, like Kendrick Lamar's All Right was really popular. But it's great yeah. because it has this refrain that people can participate in and claim ownership of. Nigga, we gonna be all right. Huh? We gonna be all right. Nigga, we gonna be all right. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gonna be all right.
right. Uh, and when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. Bahamas, I'll be looking at you for the face. And, you know, we saw the Joy to the Poles movement. And we saw all different genres. We saw people dancing. The, um, what was the cha-cha song? Anyways, we saw people dancing together. Uh, yes, the, the Cupid Shuffle. Yes, thank you. Cupid, <laughs> Cupid Shuffle. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, and so right now, it's really fun. You see, like, the Revival Resistance Choir who are, um, you know, singing call and response songs still as well as other songs of course and so they're kind of um you could say maybe they're they're coming out of that singing tradition that was so important during the civil rights movement the clip you're hearing right now is the revival resistance choir singing in times square but there are also so many other genres that are important today like hip-hop um, we also saw DJs participating in Joy to the Poles, dance music. I think dance music is great because you still have that call and response participation, and there's still that sonic ownership of space that's so important for keeping people together and building that community and, and keeping that unified message. Yeah, there's just been so much great stuff. I mean, I, even in the Women's March, you saw that, you remember that, oh, yeah. that, that instance in the Women's March where they all learned all of these women learned the song via YouTube ahead of time, and they, mm-hmm. they performed together. I don't know if it was via YouTube or some other format, some other platform, but yeah, and then they sang together once they got together. And the song slash chant Dr. Whitmore was referring to here is called A Rapist in Your Path. It's a protest song from the Chilean feminist collective Las Tesis. It was first performed by thousands of women in Chile at a march for International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women in November of 2019. Women everywhere quickly caught on and coordinated similar performances at women's marches around the world. So that was kind of really neat to see. I mean, there's just so much going on. And then, of course, there are all these musicians who are taking political stances right now very vocally. And musicians taking political stances has this kind of storied history in the United States, but it also... Musicians have gotten a lot of flack for doing that from, you know, from Louis Armstrong not taking a political stance and then later taking political stances and then just being like throwing up his arms and, you know, like, you can't win almost, I give up. right? You know, it's, yeah. it's like the the basketball players who are, you know, saying, I'm going to take a political stance. I'm a visible leader who has a voice. And then people saying, no, 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 you should only play basketball. And so we're seeing a lot of that debate play out right now, too, which is um, kind of interesting. You know, we're also seeing uh, musicians awkwardly decide to take action. Um, like Lady A is kind of stumbling through their issues right now of saying, oh, crap, we need to change and kind of under, you know, we need to take a moment to reflect and change our name. But then bringing a lawsuit against the original Lady A. Right. So <laughs> of course, we're seeing this political moment play out in a lot of different ways. And I think it's really important for musicians to reflect not just on what they intend to do and what they they want to do, but also on the various impacts they can have. Because musicians, you can put out a piece of music, but the terrifying thing is you can't control the impact. You can't control how Donald Trump uses a piece of music. Really. I mean, really, you you can't. You can't control how how Joe Biden uses a piece of music. And so I, I really encourage my students to always think about not just intention like but I didn't mean to do that (laughs) but also impact and you can't necessarily control impact but you can definitely be really thoughtful about it and I definitely think like for instance if I'm going to be a cultural critic right now I definitely think Lady A could have thought a little more deeply about what they were doing right and been a little more self-reflective but that's hard and uh but it's necessary so I don't know. That, that's my big, long diatribe. You know, I could go on forever about music. It's, it's such a fascinating uh, oh, topic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm really happy you brought up the ideal of protest, too, because, I mean, obviously there have been protests occurring since the spring in the United States, and it's a huge part of the election this year. And a lot of times when people think of politics, they think of just, like, voting and, like, civic engagement like that. But politics is a lot of the times intertwined with activism as well. And music is such a huge part of that. I mean, like, it can be so powerful. I remember this one time at the Women's March in Denver, I think my freshman year of college, and a couple women who were marching had this, like, huge amp, and then were just playing songs. And they had played You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman by Aretha Franklin, and everybody was just singing. Everybody knew all of the words, and it was just, like, a very big joyful moment 
with thousands and thousands of people. And you see that through protests and movements all the time. You know, with the civil rights movement, with Vietnam, I mean, you have specific songs tied to those movements. So that was kind of a random little anecdote, but I'm really glad you brought that up. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that said, I always like to note that like music can be unifying and serve all these purposes. Music can also divide. Music can reinforce identities, right? Unifying a group of people to what end? So I'm about to teach Nazi Germany next week. I'm about to teach white nationalist music. We have a a white nationalist record label in Denver. So, you know, music serves to unify, bring people together, foster community. But it's really important to think about to what end. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, And then when we talked earlier, and you also just mentioned you work on how governments engage with music and musical diversity and how music can define national identity. Um. Did you do this field work in southern France, I believe you said, mm-hmm. where you were kind of working on that? Could you just speak on your research on this specifically with national identity and how music blends with government as a whole? Yeah. Um, so the field work I didn't talk about earlier is, is kind of my newer field work, which I conducted. I got a fellowship to go do research at the, at an, the Institute for Advanced Study in Marseille to do research on cultural policy and cultural diversity in Southern France, and specifically looking at music and cultural diversity in Southern France. So I was working in an area called um, Les Bouches-du-Rhône, which is based, which is often kind of just discussed as being Provence, and it's Southern France, and it's known for, you know, the Côte d'Azur, you know, all these beautiful things having to do mm-hmm. with the Mediterranean and tourism. So yeah. I was doing research there on cultural diversity and cultural policy, and what what drew me to that was the fact that, you know, that area is a very, very diverse area. It's on the Mediterranean. It's for year, for thousands of years. It's been a port city, uh, a really important, you know, city of cultural exchange. That said, there are enormous problems with xenophobia and racism in that, in that mm-hmm. area of France. And um, so in France, the government puts a lot of resources into culture. And now, as these different localities kind of confront really diverse populations and um, xenophobia, Islamic extremism, racism, they're trying to figure out, well, how does our cultural policy fit in there? And how do, how do we address these issues or not? And so um, in France, oftentimes, Governments, local governments, regional governments, national governments support music that promotes French national identity, that, you know, provides music education to students, right? So they're trying to figure out, okay, if we want to provide access to music, provide access to culture, and promote national identity, how are we going to do that in this context where um, there is actually really increasing community division as... um, racism and xenophobia become increasingly common. Yeah. So so they're trying to figure that out. But at the same time, in France, there is this notion that you can't support specific cultures that aren't French national culture. So the idea is that um, you can't say, I'm going to support, say, Moroccan culture. There are a lot of Moroc- people of Moroccan descent in southern France. The idea is you can't say, I'm going to support Moroccan culture. I'm going to you know, support what that community is doing because then you're defining that community as separate from the rest of France. And you're fostering community division by kind of promoting the music and, and culture of one community. And so there is this prevailing view that kind of celebrating multiculturalism in this very American way. We, t- we talk a lot in the United States about mul- celebrating multiculturalism and celebrating our roots and all the cultures in our communities. In France, that's really considered um, bad because people believe that it will foster greater hmm. community division and make people discriminate against communities even more. So interesting. People are trying to figure out, okay, how do I make sure that this under-resourced community that has a majority, say, that's people of Algerian descent, how do I make sure that they have access to culture um, and that they become part of this French national community without Hmm. celebrating the cultures that they identify with, at least overtly, (laughs) if this is making sense. That's really interesting. Yeah. But of course, the problem is this 
you know, not saying we're not going to recognize different communities means that you're not recognizing the lived experiences of people. Yeah. And what matters. You're, you're kind of saying, you know, you need to all assimilate into what we want you to, to this national culture that we imagine exists. And of course, there's a lot of debate about what that national culture is. And oftentimes the assumption is that it's, it's this unmarked white Christian Catholic in France culture. And people mm-hmm. are really resistant to that. <laughs> so yeah. so there's, this, there's, there's this big debate raging about, you know, even though the government has this very colorblind policy and you're not supposed to talk about race in France and you're not supposed to support these individual cultural communities, these communities are marginalized. They feel like their, their life experiences aren't being recognized. They feel like racism isn't being recognized because in France, you're not allowed to collect data on race and identity in that same in the ways that we do in the United States. So they can't prove that stop and frisk is racist if we don't have data on, you know, how many people of Afro- African descent are yeah. being stopped by the police. And in France, collecting that data is illegal. Of course, the reason collecting that data is illegal is because race does not have a biological basis in reality. And they, mm-hmm. and you know, people in France say, you know, we don't want to recognize race as a salient category. But the fact is it's a salient category because it's part of pe- the way people experience the world. Right. Because racism exists. So all of these cultural policy actors are saying, okay, we want to celebrate local cultures, but we can't say that we're celebrating specifically Moroccan local culture. So a lot of arts administrators kind of figure out ways to celebrate diverse local cultures while still saying that they're celebrating French culture. But then you kind of have to subtly redefine what French culture is in the process. So that's kind of what I'm negotiating. And so I was looking at a bunch of, I was working with a bunch of different arts nonprofits and community organizations and looking at, you know, the different projects that they were setting up and doing. So for example, like I worked with a project that was working with young refugees because right now we're in a refugee crisis in the southern, in the Mediterranean and in France and Italy and Greece and everywhere. And um, there are a lot of young unaccompanied uh, migrants, so minors. And so this organization had set up a choir with unaccompanied refugees who are minors, so young, or, um, or people who, who had just turned 18 or whatever, so young people. So they had set up this choir project where all of these young people were singing work songs, like um, African-American work songs. <laughs> and I was like, what? Mm. I don't understand what's <laughs> happening here. <laughs> the clip you're hearing is from Dr. Whitmore. She took this video of a citizen's party in the streets of Marseille singing an African-American work song. Um, but, you know, part of the reason they were singing work songs is because they're easy to learn. They're not associated with any immigrant culture in France. So, so the, the choir project couldn't be accused of promoting division in French society if it's not associated with any immigrant community in France. But then what was kind of cool was, you know, in actuality, in the project, they ended up you know, like learning some Syrian songs. You know, because the kids were teaching each other different songs. There were some Turkish children or young adults, um, some Syrian um, young adults, some West African young adults. But also the interesting thing about work songs is they allow for an incredible amount of uh, personalization and improvisation. Yeah. Here's a clip from one of the children's choirs Dr. Whitmore worked with, Le Cue Baton. So it's this very weird thing where I was like, this isn't work songs, but they weren't really like, in my opinion, they weren't really meant to be that, right? It's a way of creating a project that gives people voice without saying, we're gonna celebrate, you know, Turkish culture today. So there are all sorts of really interesting creative projects that engage with the really diverse life experiences of people in that area and that also amplify their voices, but just not in the ways that we do it in the United States. Yeah. That segues really nicely into my last questions here. Um, Just talking about community music making, I want to talk about the Spirituals Project. So for our listeners who are not familiar, could you give a brief description of what that is? Oh, yeah. So the Spirituals Project is a community choir project that was um, founded by former professor Art Jones. Uh, He was a former psychology professor and um, or he still 
is a human who has just retired. So we shouldn't talk about art in the past. Okay. He's a living human who just he's retired. He's still alive. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And he's contributed so much to DU. So this community choir project really is a project with a tripartite mission. Singing, music making, right, is one part of the mission. Education. Mm-hmm about the spirituals and African-American music making and the ways in which music engages with social justice because the spirituals have a long history and tradition of engaging with social justice. So that's mission number two, education. And then three, social justice, (laughs) of course. So engaging with social justice action. So um, this choir a couple years back became a part of DU officially. So what happened was DU hired Roger Holland, who is the artistic director of the choir. And then eventually they hired me as the faculty affiliate to help build the choir's um, educational and social justice mission and and work with the community choir. And it's been such a joy to do that. Um, Maybe I should explain Mm -hmm. what spirituals are. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. If we're talking about the spirituals project, that is definitely something we should talk about. (laughs) Yeah. So um, the spirituals are a genre of music that originated um, among African-American communities, enslaved Africans in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. And oftentimes spirituals are confused with gospel music. They're both religious music, but... Gospel music was developed much, much later in the 20th century and is a much more, and oftentimes we know the composers of gospel pieces. And spirituals, we rarely really know exactly who composed what song. They're considered to be to be more in the folk music and public domain arena. Many gospel singers have sung spirituals, right? So there's a lot of crossover. But yeah, that's that distinction is often not understood. But yeah, It's a wonderful genre of music, and a lot of the spirituals, because they were composed by enslaved Africans in America during slavery, they discuss issues of freedom and justice, and um, which were, of course, very, very important to enslaved peoples. And there are a lot of coded messages about, you know, freedom and, and social justice in the spirituals as well. Yeah. The song in the background you've been hearing has been a recording from the Spirituals Project, of a song called Oh Freedom. It first appeared in the 1860s and resurged in popularity in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. So what work do you do with the Spirituals Project currently and how are you hoping to you know, use this project as a mechanism of social justice via music in the community. Yeah, so right now, um, the Spirituals Project is very much um, part of the service work that I'm doing, but also the research that I'm doing. I've created a new research project with a collaborator, a professor in the School of Social Work, Dr. Markeisha Scott. So we've created Mm -hmm. um, a research project that we have entitled uh, Sacred Sounds and Social Justice, in which we're looking at the impact of the spirituals project, what we often call TSP, on its members, how its members are thinking about this project, why they engage with it, Mm. and and what impact it has on their lives. Um, And we're also hoping to look at how different community music organizations engage with social justice issues and the impact that they have. So we're expanding beyond the Spirituals Project, but we have started with a focus on the Spirituals Project and Spirituals Project members. And that's been just so rewarding to work with Spirituals Project members and talk about issues of race and social justice that have been so important to them, especially recently. So we've been doing that work, and then um, we're hoping to build a community-engaged learning course for next academic year that engages with different community music organizations that look at social justice and religion specifically. So that's our research project, but also a teaching project in the future. And in the process, we are trying to build the educational and social justice work that TSP does. So we're looking at, you know, are there community partnerships that we can build between TSP and other community organizations? What actions can we take? What are the what are the really wonderful skills that our members have? We have so many amazing members who are, you know, educators, teachers, um, psychologists, lawyers. We just have such a wealth of knowledge and also yeah. experience with social justice movements in our choir. We have a lot of choir members who have worked in various social justice movements 
for many, many years. So um, we're looking at, you know, what are the experiences of, of our members and how might they like to engage in the future? So it's exciting work and it, we just, I feel like we just started, but it's so rewarding because our members are just such amazing people and I just feel so grateful to be able to work with them. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And with that, I think we're going to close out today. But before we go, how can people and listeners get involved with you and your work, either with the Spirituals Project or with your own independent research? Do you have anything like a website or anything you want to plug before we go? Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. I, I mean, my website is pretty boring. It's just a faculty website. But come visit the Spirituals Project Choir. You know, we are doing online rehearsals these days. I'm also doing a Wednesday um social justice music teach-in every Wednesday evening. And then, you know, we will be meeting in person eventually when that happens. We, we uh, rehearse on Monday evenings and sometimes Wednesday evenings. But also I'm teaching a music and activism uh, graduate course in the winter quarter in winter 2021. And hopefully we'll be doing this community engaged learning course in next academic year. So academic year 2021, 2022, and that's going to be co-taught with me and Markeisha. So that'll be really, really, um, I hope that'll be really fun. We're building it right now. And, you know, stop by my office and say hi. You never know. what You know, <laughs> what I always tell my students is don't develop a fear of meeting with a professor one-on-one. <laughs> we yeah. love to hear from students and we love to hear what they're interested in. And, you know, you never know where you're going to find a connection. You know, you never know where you're going to end up intersecting and finding cool projects and cool collaborations. So always stop by, always say hi and kind of let us know what you're doing and, and uh, maybe, maybe something will come out of it. Yeah, I think that is amazing advice. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed it and I'm sure our listeners will too. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with the wonderful ethnomusicologist, Dr. Alasia Whitmore. Be sure to watch out for our next episode, where our host, Ruby, will do a very special student spotlight with Orpheus, a DU-based arts collective. And in the spirit of Thanksgiving, we at The Rose Room want to thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for pressing play on our episodes, sharing them, and being a part of this community. We are so grateful for you, and we're excited to keep producing more exciting episodes soon. That said, if you have any questions, suggestions, would like to be featured in a future episode, or just want to talk to any of us, contact us at lamontroseroom at gmail.com. Have an amazing week, everybody.